Why not moderation? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Aurelian Kreutu. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Aurelian Kreutu. Aurelian is Professor of Political Science at Indiana University, Bloomington. His publications include Liberalism Under Siege, A Virtue of C- for Courageous Minds, and Faces of Moderation. He has also written book reviews and essays for non-academic publications, such as the Los Angeles Review of Books and The Daily Beast. One of his books is forthcoming. It's called Why Not Moderation? Letters to Young Radicals, and that will form the basis of a lot of our conversation today. Aurelian, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. And it's great to have you on. So, Aurelian, we base each episode on a theme and a question and go wherever the answers and the conversation takes us. Our question and theme today is, why not moderation? That really gives us a chance to get into your thoughts on a moderate approach to political and social thinking and also talk about your forthcoming book. So I think a great place to start actually is just a basic high-level definition or explanation. What do you mean by moderation? Uh, um, the question itself requires the entire book because um, the way in which um, I approach moderation is um, um, in a historical uh, rather than philosophical way, uh, which is to say that I prefer to describe moderation as an archipelago because we have moderate ideas, moderate themes, moderate thinkers maybe, but it's very difficult to de- define what moderation is because there is no single definition of moderation that can be offered. For example, uh, moderation can be present in the works of Plato. Uh, there are themes related to moderation in the works of Aristotle and Cicero, and then in the modern age in the works of Montaigne, um, Montesquieu, uh, Burke, and Tocqueville. But It's not the same idea. I try to look at moderation under three lenses, so to speak, or through three lenses, Baron said, which is the first one is uh, the uh, ethical aspect of moderation, moderation as, uh, as a virtue from an ethical point of view, the avoidance of excess. And if you look at the uh, inscription that is on the frontispiece of the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, um, nothing in excess, you get an idea uh, about uh, what that meant for the ancients. Uh, and then there is uh, a, uh, a related uh, aspect of moderation as, um, let's say, an attempt to find the middle way between the extremes, uh, which is also connected to the first definition of moderation as an avoidance of extremes. But this one, the second one, is more connected with the idea of finding a middle way, a middle ground. Um, And then if you look beyond this aspect of moderation, uh, we get into the ethical, um, uh, excuse me, we get into the institutional aspects of moderation. And that is an, an area that is usually neglected by people who refer to moderation. What do I mean by that? Moderation is um, embedded in in an institutional and constitutional framework that presupposes uh, balance of powers, separation of powers, federalism, 
polycentricity, bicameralism, veto power, you name it. It's this idea of the dispersion of power that is at the heart of the institutional and constitutional aspect of moderation. So that's the second larger area uh, that I would like to bring into our conversation, the institutional and the constitutional aspects of moderation. And last but not least, the third aspect of moderation has to do with the style. Moderates espouse a certain style, which is usually characterized by the propensity to compromise, the openness to dialogue, and the refusal of sectarianism and fanaticism. And that is the style of moderation. So to make a long story short, to understand the complexity of the archipelago of moderation, as I define it, you need to look at moderation as an ethical virtue. You look, need to look at the institutional and the constitutional aspects of moderation and at moderation as a particular style, a style of action, a style of uh, engagement in politics. So all three together, not just one. Great. Uh, I, I think that was an excellent overview. Uh, obviously, as you said, there's a lot more information in the book. And yes, it, it does take a whole book to explore all these things in detail, of course. And we encourage everyone to uh, check out Aurelian's book when it comes out later this year. But but no, I think that was an excellent overview for our conversation. So now I'm going to dig into a couple of specific points that you sort of laid out in that uh, broad approach that you just took there. But I, I do want to say that it sounds like as you're saying, like there's there's multiple pillars to this conversation. So it, it does sound like moderation to you is more like an overall approach that can frame one's thinking and how they look at history and how they look at current social and political issues in context. So it sounds more like a framework for thinking rather than, for example, your prescription to have like a certain political stance. Um, yes, and I define I define moderation in the book as an alternative to ideology. Ideologies give us lenses. Uh, usually organized around one single principle that could be um, class, gender, race, ethnic background or so, uh, through which we can understand uh, the world and explain how it should change. Moderation is the, an alternative to this way of thinking because it can be found on all sides of the political spectrum. So yes, I, I want to make clear that moderation is a way of making things complex, of respecting the complexity of life rather than simplifying life as ideologies tend to do. That's why moderates can be found on both the left and the right side of the political spectrum. Moderates are not always conservative. There is a radical side to moderation that I emphasize in this book, but also in my previous work on moderation. So it, it's, it's, as you said, it's an alternative to ideology. So is it, is it fair to say that instead of an ideology, it's more of a methodology? I, I do resist this um, um, idea because it would, in my view, amount to simplifying a complex virtue like moderation. Let's hmm. not forget moderation is a cardinal virtue. Um, uh, along with um, with others, with prudence, for example, right, and it's, it's more than uh, much more than a methodology. It implies, I think, the emphasis on methodology in your question, I think, would relate to moderation as a style, if you wish, right. That would be the third aspect of moderation, which would leave out the first two, which are equally important, if not perhaps more important. There right. is a political vision behind moderation, which I discuss at length in the third part of this book, which is the central part of why not moderation. And that encompasses uh, certain uh, important concepts such as 
compromise, centrism, uh, trimming, finding the balance between the extremes, but also a type of pragmatic partisanship, dialogue, and eclecticism. So it's much more than a methodology. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. And and I and like I said, I want to get into what you mean by it as an ethic, as an attempt to find a middle way, as an institutional approach. So I'm going to ask you some follow questions on that. But before that, one more definitional thing, and then we'll get into some more of the the meat and and exploring some of those things you laid out. You did re- mention radical moderate. So maybe some people think this is sort of an oxymoron or doesn't make sense. But obviously, you do have some sense to bring to that approach and 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 make it make sense. So, so what do you mean by a radical moderate? How does moderation as you've been describing it as you just said have a radical end to it as well or a a way you can uh, you know work with it radically if you will Uh, to answer your question properly uh, i think we we need to look uh, first at uh, the images the preconceptions towards moderation one of which is that moderation is a marshy mushy wishy-washy uh, attempt to find uh, a kind of uh, unstable center between the extremes, right? But it doesn't have a substantive position. And and the moderates, as I understand, and I and I look at history, for example, to demonstrate that, uh, do not correspond to that image. Let's take, for example, uh, the image of Abraham Lincoln, um, who uh, whom I discuss in this book. Lincoln was a moderate. Uh, Lincoln tried to find uh, a compromise between different positions. He was not an abolitionist at the at the beginning, though he uh, ended up signing the Emancipation Declaration and led the country into the Civil War. So what's interesting uh, is that um, um, we have in Lincoln's case, but we, we could also bring other cases here, uh, such as General Washington, we have an example of a, a radical moderate someone who um, combines boldness, co- courage, but also firmness with the propensity to, to, to seek compromise and, and uh, being open to dialogue and uh, 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 try to avoid violence. So uh, that's one example. There are other uh, examples that one could look at uh, to find, um, uh, I think, the best understanding of uh, what a radical moderate would be. Uh, so uh, that's one one image that I try to dispel in the book. Moderates uh, have a radical side, and moderation actually entails often a rebellious uh, attitude that welcomes tension and contradiction rather than uh, moves away from uh, them. And here, the example that I would give for those who might be interested in pursuing this line of thought is the work of uh, the French novelist and philosopher Albert Camus. Uh, Camus, as I understand his position, was uh, such a, uh, an example of a rebellious and firm moderate. Right. No, that's excellent. Yeah, and I, I think this idea that, uh, you know, there, there, it is possible to be a radical moderate and that, you know, moderation isn't just, as you said, simply like a, a, a sort of squishy stance in between two extremes. I, I think that'll actually be even further explored as I jump into here a couple of things you laid out previously. So so let's do that now, because you did sort of outline these, you know, the, these pillars as, as the points that we can learn more about moderation and explore it further. So one of the first things you mentioned was moderation as, as an ethic, like, you know, this this idea that you're you're against excess. And of course, as you said at the beginning, you know, that there's a lot more one can explore in your book that's coming out on this. And, and we can, you know, we, we don't need to read the whole book now. Of course, that'll take us hours. But just generally speaking, let's explore moderation as an ethic. What do you mean of it, about it as an ethic against excess? So we need to, I think, uh, stick to the understanding of the ancients. And, and here is the avoidance um, of extremes. Um, 
I think that um, we we all see uh, colleagues, friends, people around us going to extremes, and we understand uh, what that entails in practice. One example would be someone who is pro-life or pro-choice to the extreme, which is to say seeing and interpreting everything through the lenses of one's position on abortion, pro-life or pro-choice. Everything right. else pales in comparison with this. You look at others and, and discover that there are, uh, especially in politics, people who judge our representatives based on their stance on taxes. Um, if someone votes for lower taxes, uh, gets a high score or a low score, depending on which side of the political spectrum uh, you, you side. Um, and you can multiply these examples. So those are examples of positions that are taken to extremes. When you see uh, uh, the world and you, you try to interpret what's going on around you through the lenses of one single principle, that's a form of monomania, as I describe it in the book. And it's a form of, at the end of the day, of extremism that can verge into fanaticism. It's not necessarily fanaticism, but it can verge into fanaticism. And for that matter, I think moderates understand that sometimes you need to, to combine principles from each camp, each side, in order to, um, uh, let's say, find a, a reasonable position. And that is um, moderation as a kind of an avoidance of extremes. It's an understanding of the complexity of reality, and it's an effort to resist, I think, the simplification of reality, which uh, is always very tempting to do. And that's what the ancients understood. I think the best example here would be Aristotle, who understands very clearly that sometimes you need to lean in one direction, and sometimes you need to lean in other direction in order to uh, uh, let's say, find the reasonable position. And this is uh, explored in the sixth um, uh, book of the Nicomachean Ethics, where Aristotle talks about moderation, I think, as uh, political uh, prudence, as polit practical wisdom, better said, as a form of phronesis, as a form of, of uh, uh, understanding uh, and judging uh, the contours, uh, the ever-shifting contours of reality, because there is no algorithm that can teach us how to react in different circumstances based on one single principle. Right. I think that rolls nicely into the next pillar that you sort of outlined at the beginning of our discussion. You said after you talk about moderation as an ethic against excess, you talk about moderation as an attempt to find sort of like a, a middle way. And, and you were just starting to talk about that there. So, so I want to push further into what you mean by a middle way, because some might mistake this and kind of go back to their default assumption that, okay, Aurelian, even after all that, the middle way, again, just sounds like a point between two positions. That is to say, we get back to this, according to you, m misconception that it's just a, a squishy point uh, that balances like two extremes. So, so how do you differentiate your type of moderation and middle way from what some people might misconceive as sort of just ultimately a squishy watered down version of two sides? Like what, what does a strong moderation middle way look like in your mind from your perspective rather than what some other people might think of it as? Okay, let's try to, to think together about this. This is a, a difficult question to answer because I'm, I'm not sure I have the right answer here. Uh, first, we can work with a distinction between the middle and the mean. The middle is, is let's say, easy to find. Uh, you measure the distance between two positions and you find the middle. Right. And it's mathematically determined, so to speak. 
or geometrically determined. Right. The mean, the mean is different, and this is this is the difficulty with finding the mean that it requires judgment, and it's situational. Sometimes the mean is a little bit to the right, sometimes the mean maybe a little bit to the left. It's shifting. It's not once forever. And that's why it requires judgment. And that's why I said earlier, and I want to come back to this idea that moderates sometimes lean to the left and sometimes lean to the right. And you can find moderates on the left as well as on the right side of the political spectrum. It's not a conservative position per se, though it does, it does have conservative elements. Right. It can be found on the left side of the political spectrum, though perhaps less often than one would hope. In my previous book, which I published in 2017, which is entitled Faces of Moderation, the Art of Balance in the Age of Extreme, I chose precisely examples from the center, the left and the right to demonstrate that moderation can be found on all of these positions. On the left, I talked in that book um, at length about the political philosophy of the Italian philosopher uh, Norberto Bobbio, someone whom I respect and like a lot. And on the right, I chose as an example uh, the writings of the British political philosopher Michael Oakeshott. Both were moderates, but in a different way. Right. Uh, one one was more open to socialism. One was more open to I don't know type of conservatism that was of human extraction rather than Birkin extraction and so forth. So that's fascinating because you 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 understand then if you look concretely at these examples that. Um, they were not in the middle. <laughs> uh, they were moderates that were on the left and on the right, but they shared something in common. And they shared this propensity to, um, let's say, reject manichaeism, the, the idea that the world can be understood in black and white contrast, that there are forces of evil and forces of, uh, of goodness, dark and light, uh, fighting against each other. And politics is like the domain of the holy. And that's something that the moderates oppose. Anyway, coming back to your question, I think that it's pretty obvious that that um, um, uh, finding the mean uh, requires judgment. And, and judge, there's no algorithm, there is no recipe for what is good political judgment. And that's why this is a topic that is, is uh, so fascinating because, um, again, um, it's very difficult, arguably impossible to define good political judgment. You can find examples of reasonable political judgments, people who made reasonable decisions in concrete circumstances, but good judgment is difficult. Right. And I guess someone like a, for, you know, the most easy go-to example there is like, you know, someone like a John Stuart Mill might argue that you're not ever going to find that uh, that that sort of middle way, if you will, and, and exercise your political judgment unless there is conversations and dialogue and actual interaction happening between camps rather than as opposed to, for instance, outright partisanship and the excess, right? That goes without saying. And the stronger the contradictions, the, the more heated the debates, the more intense the debates, the better, because uh, then we um, we get out of uh, our comfort zone. Um, the sharper our opponents, the more intelligent we become. And this is an idea that was uh, uh, borrowed uh, in the 20th century by Isaiah Berlin, who, who actually, as a liberal, um, studied uh, those who opposed liberalism. So he is famous for having written on uh, conservative thinkers such as Joseph de Mestre and um, Haman. Um, so that's that's an example of, of um, I would say, the awareness that the sharper the critics, the better our ideas might be. Right. 
And actually, I think that tumbles nicely into another thing you outlined as we started here, um, which is this idea of the uh, moderation as a style, like, you know, a style of dialogue, a style of approach. I think we just just started, um, you know, started tumbling into that. Uh, that. That's when you also tacked on the idea that it's indeed an alternative to ideology. So c- can you elaborate a little more on what you mean about moderation as a style? Okay, that's um, uh, that's a favorite topic of mine because <laughs> I I think that um, um, we could start by looking at uh, the spirit of moderation. What is the spirit of moderation? Let me remind you what um, a learn, uh, learned hand, a very learned judge, uh, said about the spirit of liberty. He says, what then is the spirit of liberty? I cannot define it. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure that it is right. The spirit of liberty is the spirit which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women. Um, the spirit which weighs their interest alongside its own without bias. I think that we can say much the same things about the spirit of moderation. It is the spirit um, that tells you that you, you, you can't be sure that you are right or wrong. You hope you are reasonable but you always leave the possibility open that you may be in the wrong. It's the spirit, if you wish, to, who seeks to understand the minds and the perspective of other people uh, in full awareness of the fact that those perspectives may be uh, even more valuable than one's own. And it is the spirit that weighs their interests, seeks to find a compromise between their interests and, uh, and one's own. So this is fundamental to understand. There is a... Um, spirit of humility there is a spirit of um, uh, let's say uh, self-restraint at the heart of uh, moderation the spirit of moderation uh, casts doubt on anyone who who claims uh, to have absolute um, authority on a particular topic Um, and that's why uh, i think the spirit of moderation the ethos of moderation requires treating people with respect recognizing their equal dignity and embracing diversity and pluralism and pluralism of viewpoints and ideas. And that's essential. And that's why I think at the heart of the spirit of moderation lies uh, the effort uh, to uh, burst out of our bubbles and comfort zones and echo chambers. This is the greatest danger to um, any uh, free society that we, we, um, become uh, prisoners of our own bubbles and echo chambers. And the spirit of moderation has nothing in common with the spirit of bubbles and echo chambers. Right. And and on that note, it would seem to me that, you know, the, 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 the true moderate would appreciate the subtle difference between, you know, an approach to uh, interacting with other folks that maybe even be opposed to them, you know, uh, you know, that subtle difference between the idea of dialogue and conversation and exchange versus persuasion, because even persuasion itself can be sort of almost like a point of, of excess in a certain way. That's not to say persu- persuasion is bad unto itself, but I, to me, at least, especially in today's, uh, you know, political and social culture, even though other folks want to um, interact with and debate with uh, folks that they may think are opposed to them, it seems that the goal is always like an ultimate persuasion, which is a one-way street ultimately, not an exchange that actually sharpens your own political judgments. So to me, like that that subtle difference is also important to the moderate, but I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that or if you agree with that statement. I, I do agree with that. And I want to add to what you said, uh, the idea that um, moderation is opposed to sectarianism. Uh, we all know when we see a sectarian person, is someone who uh, uh, um, 
is always ready to discard all hypotheses and, and stick to, to, to uh, his or her own ideas. Um, uh, someone who um, uh, always frowns upon others, uh, who is uh, uh, unable to trust others, and um, who doesn't uh, do well with criticism. Moderates are the opposite of that. And uh, that's why, as you said earlier, moderates are uh, placing a high value on dialogue, contestation, um, and controversy. Now, let's be honest and admit that um, uh, controversy is uh, uh, always uh, unpleasant. Um, there's a discomfort of adversarial and sometimes uncivil exchanges that displeases us. And we would rather spend time and talk to our friends. And the algorithms on the social media help us <laughs> talk to our friends. Already. Right, right. But real life, real politics force us to talk to people whom we do not like, who do not like us, and people who actually have different views from us. Mm -hmm. So what do we have? Well, we have two options. Um, we have one option. On the one hand, we can remain um, in our comfort zone and talk to those who share our ideas. Um, and the other idea would be to um, uh, try to talk and reach out to those who disagree with us. Uh, and that is a very important uh, lesson of moderation. Uh, that's why moderation is a virtue for courageous minds. This is the title of another book I published. I wrote immoderately about this virtue. I have to confess this sin. <laughs> and, uh, and I take full responsibility for that. But I took that idea from Edmund Burke, who defined moderation as a virtue for noble minds. Well, I I gave it as a title to my 2012 book, A Virtue for Courageous Minds, because it does take a lot of courage, and let's be honest, a lot of courage to talk to people whom we do not like, who do not like us, whose ideas we find wrong, uh, and who uh, may even want to uh, defeat us. So it takes a lot of courage, determination, it's risky. And that's why I think it's important to acknowledge that moderation is a very risky virtue. It's not a comfort uh, uh, virtue. It's right. not something that, that uh, secures success. Most of the time, moderates lose, though not always, but uh, they have to fight, and uh, fighting is always dangerous. Right. And on that note, I want to explore one the, the last pillar that you outlined at, at the front of our conversation before we head to our break. And and you you emphasized this. You said this is very important. That's why I did leave it to the last of the list as we were moving that around there. So you talked about moderation as an institutional approach or an outlook on institutions and appreciation for institutions from that perspective, the moderate approach. And you said this is both underappreciated and underexplored. So w what do you mean by moderation as an institutional approach? Why is this so important? So moderation is not just a virtue, it's embedded into a constitutional and institutional framework. Um, let's look at, uh, for example, the uh, writings of uh, Montesquieu. In the spirit of the laws, he draws uh, uh, the, a list of what it means to have a moderate government. And uh, among the things that uh, he uh, listed there, uh, you find bicameralism, you find balance of powers, you find separation of powers, and you find veto power. All of these are elements that are embedded into the U.S. Constitution, and there's no secret that the, our founding fathers uh, cited Montesquieu more than anyone else in the Federalist Papers. 
uh, Montesquieu influenced the constitutional vision behind the U.S. Constitution, along with, of course, John Locke and a few others. But Montesquieu is the defining figure. So there is this political vision behind moderation that that uh, is embedded in in a constitution. And the U.S. Constitution is not the only one that represents the spirit of moderation, the political vision of moderation as an institutional uh, uh, framework. And uh, that allows powers to cooperate, but also to control each other. Uh, moderation is, uh, I think, uh, to be found in any constitutional institutional system where, where powers are made to compete for supremacy uh, without being able to annihilate each other. So power can check power. That's the famous line from uh, the spirit of the laws that can be found then in the Federalist Papers. You find then the idea that you need two chambers uh, rather than one. Why? Because one has to check the potential excesses of the other. You have a Senate and you have a House of Representatives. Then you have um, the balance of powers. Uh, this is a concept that is not always well understood. We tend to uh, confounded with separation of powers. Yes, right. there is separation of powers, but more importantly, the U.S. Constitution and other constitutions are based on the concept of balance of powers, which means that, for example, the legislative power gets to uh, exercise some executive functions and vice versa, the executive power gets to exercise some legislative functions and the same with the judicial. The judicial can invalidate some uh, laws passed by the legislative power. This is balance of powers. It's not separation. Uh, and, and I think that that um, um, uh, that is the spirit of moderation. You can add to all this the concept of federalism, the idea that power is, is distributed, is decentralized, and there are competing centers of power. Or better said, there are different spheres in which different decisions ought to be taken. This is a concept of subsidiarity in the Catholic thinking, or to use an example closer to home, uh, uh, the concept of polycentricity, which was uh, at the heart of the works of Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom, who founded the Bloomington School of um, uh, Political Economy and Public Choice. So uh, those concepts define what I understand uh, to be the constitutional and the institutional framework of moderation. Right. And I think that that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're, we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Aurelian Kreutu today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Rosa Pajarello, Danny Leroy, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Aurelian Creotu today. So Aurelian, I think the first half was, was excellent. Uh, we really explored um, and, and sort of rounded off um, both the point that moderation is sort of a larger topic than just one or two things we could say. You said that at the outset, but I think we also did a really good job of getting into, at least at a high level, uh, the different pillars of, of your thinking on moderation and so on. And I think that's excellent. And as I said in the first half, um, and Aurelian mentioned as well, there's lots more in his book. So we encourage you all to keep an eye out for that when it's released and explore that further. I'd like to sort of move into a few questions that now sort of 
um, add some color commentary um, to the the larger discussion of how moderation sort of hits up with either other approaches and ideologies and so on. One thing that you actually mentioned right in the introduction to your book that I found interesting was that, um, you know, in many circles, at least, moderation is not a popular idea. I mean, you quoted, I think it was one, if I remember correctly, op-ed in, in, a, in a press uh, article somewhere, um, you know, that they said this idea that moderation lacks a quote-unquote magnetic idea. Um, you know, based on the way you talk passionately about moderation, uh, I personally don't think that it's not a magnetic idea. I think this is a very interesting idea. So, but, so do you actually agree with the sentiment that, it, it, you know, there's no magnetic idea behind moderation? Is moderation itself an interesting enough idea and that it's just other people don't perceive it correctly? What's going on there? Why is moderation not a more popular idea then? The irony is that the claim that moderation lacks a magnetic idea comes from the pen of David Brooks, uh, a journalist that I admire a lot, who is a great defender of moderation. He mentioned uh, that claim uh, and he uh, discarded, but uh, he seems to believe that there's something unappealing about moderation that that um, uh, still uh, resonates with the public. And I think he's right. I think that if we look uh, around, there's always a temptation of simplifying moderation seeing moderation is boring while uh, going to the extremes radicalism extremism is always flashy and let's be honest and admit that um you know the social media uh, our politics our cable tv channels and you know basically people around us they are always tempted by the extremes uh, who are the thinkers for example uh, who are um, discussed uh, at length uh, are those who um, have gone to the extremes. Heidegger seems to, to be considered a great philosopher, and he was a great philosopher, but also his political judgment was disastrous, yet he's uh, very much uh, in demand. So is Carl Schmitt, another brilliant um, legal uh, scholar who um, uh, was uh, a Nazi. Um, and uh, the moderates tend to to be neglected and i think that the impression is that um they uh they don't have a vision and i think that that's something that that i can do to and others of course to uh, uh combat and uh, the idea that there is a political vision of behind moderation that has a radical side but not only a radical side but it's uh, one that without which we cannot live as free and equal citizen in a in a free society, I think that has a lot of purchase. And I think that that has been neglected. And I think that it's extremely important for us to emphasize that radical side of moderation, the difficulty of it, but also the radical side of moderation. And one of the examples that I gave earlier uh, was uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I want to point out again the importance of George Washington in the history of moderation, but you can have other thinkers who are rather radical, Benjamin Franklin, for example, um, and uh, uh, there are many others that, that can be brought into the conversation. Um, one thing that usually is, is brought up in the conversations about this um, topic is whether uh, moderation can be a recipe for success because, um, you know, allegedly lacking a magnetic idea, uh, it cannot uh, be successful. But I I want to challenge that. It's a difficult virtue. It, there's no guarantee of success, but it can bring success. And uh, I gave again the example of Lincoln, who in the end um, 
shows that moderation can be successful, though at high cost. Um, one, one, uh, one other thing I think is is worth mentioning here: um, moderation uh, doesn't lack a, a, a magnetic idea, but the idea that I associate with it is that of balance. Now, I'm not sure people appreciate balance very much all the time, but without balance, we cannot live. So the idea of balance is central to moderation. And if I were to uh, settle for one image uh, for moderates, it's that of uh, someone who seeks to maintain one's balance. And in the book, uh, in this book, but also in the previous book, Faces of Moderation, I choose the example of a trimmer, of a funambulist, tightrope walker, who goes on a very thin wire and seeks to f maintain his or her equilibrium balance um, while being exposed to the high winds. And that's a magnetic idea for me. Right. No, and, and for and for me as well. I mean, my bias is I think it's a very interesting idea. So those that might be subscribers to either um, the idea of being a moderate or even a radical moderate, it seems to me that the work is cut out in both ways. On the one hand, it's actually getting the word out there, if you will, about what moderation actually is and how it's more of an in-depth discussion than people might think. And then also convincing people and discussing with them about the virtues of moderation. So it sounds like it's a, it's a, it's a double-ended project for sure. Well, it's, um, it requires, first and foremost, a certain uh, openness to the idea of moderation. If you, if you are skeptical from the get-go, then uh, the conversation doesn't go that far. As I said, um, to speak intelligently about this virtue, you need first and foremost to understand there's a tradition of moderation in history. And uh, you cannot ignore that tradition. It's a complex one. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's one that um, uh, we should start from. We cannot speculate about what moderation is as if there's no tradition behind it. So you need to do your homework a little bit before starting arguing or talking about moderation. And this is what I, I tried to do in the first part of the book, looking a little bit at the history of it, also in the American tradition, but also in the continental tradition, because that tradition informs the way in which we understand this virtue today. Right. And on that note about the idea being open to the idea and the virtue itself out from the get-go. I think that's very important. And, and in the beginning of your book, you do note that some folks, perhaps particularly young ones, just on the face of it, uh, you know, when they look at the world today and, and they think of what the potential solutions might be to certain social and political problems, you know, you kind of note that they often don't think that moderation is a solution, but in fact that we need more radicalism. I mean, we spent a lot of time here um, talking about, again, what you think moderation is and your thoughts on it. And we, of course, and you did, of course, mention a, a couple times uh, about the point about being against excess and certain types of partisanship and certain types of radicalism, I suppose. But, I, but I'd like to take the opportunity now to ask you a little further. Like, obviously, you think moderation is uh, is a virtue and it's, it's 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 superior and ultimately better to a different types of partisanship, ideology, and radicalism. But we didn't really talk about why radicalism itself is is more dangerous and a problematic in your eyes. So, so why is that then? Like, not why is it on on the one hand, which we've already talked about, that moderation is something to consider and take seriously. I think we've covered that, but. Why is radicalism something to avoid, or certain senses of radicalism and ideology? Okay, uh, certain senses of radicalism, uh, better said. Uh, I want to point out uh, to dispel any misunderstanding or possible misunderstanding that I do not claim that radicalism uh, is a pejorative term in the book. Um, I, I want to uh, sound a cautionary note against anyone who rejects 
the need for radical solutions at some points in history. Right. Um, for example, it's very uh, important to remember that you cannot fight against totalitarian uh, dictators like Hitler or uh, or Stalin uh, using uh, moderate means. At some point, you you have to uh, go all the way. And that's important to remember. Right. Uh, but um, I think that there is a distinction to to be kept in mind between uh, utopian social engineering and peace piecemeal reform. What uh, radicals tend to uh, espouse most of the time is is an utopian social engineering uh, mentality, and that requires, for example, uh, um, recreating the world from from scratch. Uh, changing the entire structure of society uh, as if tradition experience uh, play no role or on the contrary a nefarious role and i think that the piecemeal uh, reform is very important here because uh, with piecemeal reform uh, one is able to maintain what's good from the past and uh, uh, move forward uh, improving and bringing the necessary changes and i think that that's that's essential to to apply to for example current understandings of how to uh, and, you know move forward and improve our racial relations and uh, understanding the inequalities in our societies one radical position would 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 be to say that everything is is racist and and everything is permeated by uh, the ethos of inequality in our society and we need to go to the root of the problem and the other one is to say okay these problems are real uh, these problems are serious and we need to deal with them in a piecemeal reform without uh, tearing down the whole edifice. And I think that that is the spirit of moderation. Right. And it's, it seems like it would be fair to say to you, you know, at the beginning, you talked about how, um, you know, mo- moderation isn't just the middle per se between right and left. You said moderates and, and serious thinking on moderation can be found on, quote unquote, the right or the left or in, in many different, um, you know, uh, political sentiments. So it seems like the opposite is also true, though, that the non-moderate or immoderate approach can certainly be found on all sides as well. Yeah, I think I think so. And, and that's important to uh, uh, to uh, point out that. Uh, the lack of moderation is uh, is to be found on both sides of uh, the political spectrum. And in the book, for example, the way in which I, I try to address these issues by imagining a conversation with a radical from the left and with one from the right, um, and and I I try to to imagine what they could say um, against moderation. And I I used excerpts from from journal articles published by journalists from both the left and the right. So in a way, I imagine a dialogue, but that dialogue is real because it's based on on, on journal articles. Right. And I actually did want to get a little bit into today, and I'm glad you touched on it because we can do that now, like exactly, um, you know, that, that sort of writing style that you used in the book. So can you explain a little more about the, the dialogue approach in this book with these imaginary folks in the book? And, and, and more importantly, why did you think that was such an interesting way of, of exploring this, this topic of moderation? And why was it important? It's an interesting way of, of talking about moderation. First of all, it's a trade book. It's a book addressed to a uh, general audience. And I thought that a general audience needs a different style f- from an academic style. And uh, I think uh, there's a, an aff- affinity between uh, moderation and dialogue. In a dialogue, nobody has the monopoly of truth. Nobody has the final say. Uh, there is a, an art of conversation that... Uh, is based on, uh, let's say, uh, a playful attitude, 
um, there is no final word uh, that uh, either interlocutor has. And I think that uh, this is uh, why I chose to write the book under uh, in this format, uh, using uh, imaginary uh, interlocutors and a series of letters. Um, but the, the whole conversation is punctuated by interludes, intermezzos, breaks, and then uh, again conversations, and it ends with um, with rules for radical moderates. So there should be a rhythm to the book, and I think that. That rhythm is difficult to find. I'm not sure if I found the right one, but it's not a linear book. It's a book in which there are ups and downs. Uh, you come back and revisit a topic. You open, reopen a conversation. You declare yourself unsatisfied with the previous uh, remarks. You want to explore something further. You challenge a previous um, uh, hypothesis and um, you, you try to convince at the end of the day. So I think that it's a playful book. Um, it's a book that is based on a serious com serious uh, conversation and uh, a serious set of, of topics. Right. And, and another thing about, about the book itself, you actually note in the introduction that like underlying all of this, like the way you described, you know, it explores different topics, it weaves back and forth, sometimes it's, it's playful. But, but you did note in the introduction that, you know, underlying all this is a few key convictions. You know, one of those is the idea that um, you, you, you said, and I'll quote you here, uh, we may not afford to bargain away the liberal civilization and open society we have inherited from our forefathers. Instead, we must be prepared to fight for those values and principles and never give up on them. Um, this seems to me to be an area where, again, it, like for lack of a better word, there is no middle approach. Uh, this seems to be a very strong conviction that you say that a moderate should have. Um, and, and the fact is, there are people that are very much against the ideas that you outline in the book, like some of the keywords you use, you know, when it comes to certain liberal values, more specifically, you know, pluralism, solidarity and diversity, uh, the value of dialogue across political differences. So I'm, I'm trying to be funny here, because I know you use the words a specific way. But in a way, some people might view this as where the moderate says there is no moderation to be had. Like there's a certain line that one cannot cross. If someone is against certain liberal values and the civilization and pluralism, diversity, and, and all that kind of stuff that you were just talking about, there isn't really any budging there. Well, sometimes in order to be faithful to the spirit of moderation, one has to go beyond moderation. And as I said, there are moments in history when that's the case. Fortunately, not always the case. Right. But most of the time <clears throat> we live in relatively stable societies where the conventions, the norms are not challenged. Yet, in our recent history, we've seen moments when, you know, we were frightened by the specter of civil war. And that's not something we should take lightly. So, yes, uh, I think what I say in the, in the introduction, I think reflects my belief, strong belief, that we live in a fragile liberal society and that's something that we need to protect. Right. And, and another one of the sort of convictions that he says underlying most of not all the book, of course, is, is that the idea, and I found this very interesting because um, I didn't expect when I was reading that section, like, you know, when people typically list, you know, here's some convictions that we have a moderation. I sort of got the point as you were going along, but I thought this was very interesting too. You said, quote, moderation can be found in many religions and cultural traditions 
beyond the confines of what is known as Western civilization. So I found this very interesting in two ways. One, because often when people are writing and it's for a predominantly like, you know, Western audience, you know, when we talk about liberalism, some people have that in their head as, you know, like a, a part of a Western tradition of the way liberal democratic nations work and so on and so forth. But for you to make this point here that this isn't just a Western centric discussion and, and rather my interpretation of the inverse is that this this can be this is a global virtue and it doesn't and it spans across different cultures different religions and traditions i found that very interesting why was that so important for you as as a point to make like why did you think that was so important to put to list as one of the convictions of the book i wish i could elaborate more on that but i don't have the intellectual resources to to say more it's an intuition of mine which is to say that moderation has an universalist appeal and the little I know of Confucianism, for example, uh, makes me believe that moderation as a form of temperance, avoidance of extremes as well, um, are is at the heart of uh, Confucius analects and the whole tradition of Confucianism. There is a book that I, I, uh, I uh, quote, uh, I think, in a previous book. <laughs> it's called The Doctrine of the Mean that is written by um, uh, a disciple of Confucius, and that shows very clearly that uh, there's a doctrine there of moderation in Confucianism. I like this idea of, of moderation having an universalist appeal because then it shows that it's not something that is limited to a particular um, part of the globe or it's parochial. It's universal. Therefore, it's human and, mm. and it can appeal to people of different tradition. And it, it has this unifying uh, potential. Um, uh, people can fight for these values when they are threatened precisely because they share something in common. Right. And, and another thing that you, you mentioned is one of the conv convictions of the book too, and you did already mention it previously, which is, you know, this idea that we need to, um, you know, quote, burst out of our bubbles and echo chambers and work hard to rebuild uh, civic bridges, end quote. Um, and, and you did mention that before and, and get into it. Um, so, so I kind of just want to, to follow up on that because you already explored it. So I don't think you need to explain that point further because I think it's well made. But do you do you think too much emphasis, in fact, then is put on the opposite? And I know this is a bit of a loosey goosey, like you know, cultural critic critique question I'm throwing at you right now. So, um, but, but but you know, to me, it seems not everybody, but in many cases, there's a lot. You know, socially, politically, there's a lot of people seeming to hold up the idea that uh, avoidance and, and minding your own business and, and and not engaging and avoiding potentially controversial topics, that that in itself is, is, is virtuous. Maybe it is at times, but it would seem that your, your point, it would be the exact opposite is that that's not a virtue. This idea that you can just ignore things and not engage and, and, and avoid that in fact is, is would be a negative if I understand you correctly, or perhaps not. Um, I, I think so. Um, I would add here the virtue of prudence. Uh, sometimes it's imprudent to ignore or avoid certain things. Sometimes mm. it's imprudent to take up and not ignore certain things. Right. So again, there's no single answer to this. And there's it's no coincidence that there is an affinity between the virtue of moderation and the virtue of prudence. They belong to the same, let's say, space, conceptual space, if not anything else. And uh, I think that um, uh, most of the time, um, it's very productive and fruitful uh, to uh, get out of your comfort zone and um, uh, challenge your ideas. But it's very difficult. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, we like to be comforted. We like to, to be told we are the best. 
the most intelligent, we are doing well. Um, imagine someone would tell you, uh, you know, your podcast uh, has a lot to improve. Right. Uh, you would take it uh, not necessarily easily. <laughs> you'd, you'd be a little bit pissed. And, uh, you know, if a student would come to my office and say, Professor, you, I think you, you, you didn't do a good job with that. I would listen. I would, I would, you know, I wouldn't be offended, but I wouldn't be pleased either. So there's something, something useful here uh, when someone points to uh, areas where, you know, we don't do our best, where we are actually wrong. But I think it's essential. We stand to gain a lot by uh, having uh, intelligent people uh, challenge our ideas. It's not, it's not easy. It doesn't happen too often. Um, and that's why most of our controversies end up in vituperations, in <laughs> insults, right? And basically lead to nothing, because you say go to hell, you are a stupid person, uh, or, or even worse, and uh, you learn nothing from from your critics. Right. Learning from your critics is an art as much as the art of civil disagreement. I've just finished teaching a class on on uh, polarization, which is a topic of great interest to me and others. And one of the texts we read there was by the New York columnist Brett Stevens, The Art of Civil Disagreement. This art of civil disagreement has been lost, has been lost because of our increasing polarization and, and sectarianism, uh, and we need to relearn it. Uh, but like the art of conversation, the art of civil disagreement is an art that requires attention, openness, disponibility, some form of intelligence, humor, uh, not everything should be taken lightly, but not everything should be taken as if it is the end of the world. So all of this must be combined, and we need to relearn the art of civil disagreement. Mm -hmm. And and I also really like the way you started your answer there by saying that sometimes it's like from a, from a virtue perspective, if prudence is a virtue, then it, sometimes it's imprudent to not engage or not care about something. Not being involved. That's very interesting too, because similar to moderation, how some people might superficially view moderation as just a you know, uh, you know, squishy middle ground, you know, there's no hard stances or, or whatever else. Some people also seem to superficially view prudence as just this idea that you, you remain, you know, sort of sort of like polite and, and, and you know, you're, you're making decisions to not get into conflict. But it, but obviously, it's a lot more nuanced than that. So I, I thought that was very interesting the way you put that. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a great art to to be prudent. And uh, in the book, by the way, I have a chapter on prudence in which I use um, insights uh, from uh, one of the favorite books of mine, uh, written by a 17th century Jesuit priest, Baltasar Gracian. It's called The Art of Prudence, and it was published in 1647. I highly recommend it to, to your listeners, because it's a book of, of great insights, 300 aphorisms uh, that um, were then uh, popularized in the 20th first century by Robert Greene in an in a equally famous, perhaps more famous book called The 48 Laws of Power. But it is Balthasar Gracian that talks first about prudence and power. And I think those are uh, words of wisdom that uh, nobody can equal, Balthasar Gracian's. Right. And one one more question here before we enter our, our formal wrap up and tie things off. I, I thought this this was a bit of a fun question because you know as a theme throughout this conversation, and as well you've mentioned it directly. Um, you know this idea that not enough people you know 
especially if they're coming from an ideological lens, you know, not, not enough people are sort of being skeptical of their own beliefs and, and unsure of the fact that they, they don't have the right answers and so on and so forth. So, you know, this idea that we need to examine our own beliefs and, and see where there might be potential weaknesses or areas to improve and whatnot. Um, so just sort of a fun question I want to throw your way. In, in your mind, especially as you've explored this topic, laid out the book, you have lots of thought on what moderation is. You, you know, there's a lot of angles to it, historical, modern, political, social, and so on and so forth. What what do you think either is is sort of, in your mind then, the biggest flaw or critique that you can point out in moderation? Or, or at least the way, or at least perhaps when you were creating the book and going through it where you might have had any self-doubts about your conviction of moderation. What would you say would be a strong argument, perhaps even against moderation? Well, I think the, the strongest argument uh, against uh, a moderation is that it lacks um, uh, a strong political vision. Uh, and I tried to diffuse that and, and criticize that view, but that's that's an argument that has been made uh, that um, it doesn't help us solve the problems, the deep problems that we are facing today. And uh, those have to do with fighting, uh, reducing inequalities, fighting um, violence in society. So the idea that that moderates cannot stand up to the violent ones is something that that um, I think I would say has been brought up against moderation and can can still be brought up. Sometimes um, um, uh, there is some grain of truth in that. But there's one other element that I would like to add to this. Um, what moderates do well, I think, the, the true moderates, um, I'm not sure if I belong to this category or not. I leave it to others to decide. Um, what they do well is that they exercise a capacity that I don't see in fanatics, in radicals, in, um, in those who are so self-righteous, is the capacity for self-correction and re-evaluation. And there is a propensity to self-subversion that comes with moderation. And moderates uh, like, like to play with that. Uh, the, the phrase, a propensity to self-subversion is not mine. I borrow it from the economist uh, Albert Hirschman, who wrote a book with that. And Hirschman, for me, was always a model because he liked to self-subvert his ideas, which means test them, put them there for discussion, test them, and reevaluate them. And this is what moderates do. And I think that that uh, this is where they are superior to radicals, extremists, fanatics, and so forth. The latter lack this capacity for uh, and propensity for self-subversion because they don't like it. They are always right. They always have to correct others whereas moderates don't. Right. And with that, Aurelian, I think we've, we've talked about a lot. I'd, I'd like to bring us to our formal wrap-up here. Our time is winding down. In each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to bring us full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question and their own thoughts. So let me ask you the official wrap-up question then here. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on moderation and, and how, how it's essentially a virtue and how we should think about it? In other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here today to take away one, two, or just a few things, if anything, what would you want them to take away? If someone has had enough patience to follow us to this point, that's that's already a great success, which I don't assume is going to be the case <laughs> with everyone. But assuming that that were the case, I would like to to point out that I think if there is a contribution that the book makes is precisely the question that is the title. Why not moderation? 
why not give it a try? Which means why not give it a try in the sense that why not study it? Why not delve into the universe of moderation? Why, why not try to see what's behind this word, which is sometimes despised, sometimes simplified and so forth. So avoid speaking about moderation or thinking about moderation as if it had one dimension. Remember, it's a complex um, and eclectic virtue which has many faces. And I think this effort to make this virtue complex, to show the many faces of moderation, is something that, that I'm deeply committed to. And I think it's something that any reader, any listener can take from uh, that. So do not assume that moderation is just a simple trait of character, a simple virtue uh, or a disposition. Uh, it has this institutional uh, dimension that we talked about. Uh, it makes representative institutions work. Um, that is something that we discussed, but it's also a style, a personal style, if you wish, but also a style of action and, and uh, um, a, a kind of an, a, a personal mark, if you wish. So those are the things that um, I would like um, the intelligent reader of the book and the listener to, to take uh, away. Uh, do not confound moderation with indecisiveness, with um, uh, weakness or appeasement. Um, and do not assume either that moderation can be found only on the right side of the political spectrum. Do not assume that. Uh, remember, moderation is a eclectic virtue. Um, and it's also a difficult virtue. Maybe this is uh, <laughs> the final word uh, of the conversation. Um, this is an easy this is a, not an easy virtue. What's easy is to, to use one lens, one ideology, um, one algorithm, if you wish. Uh, you are on the left, you vote always with the Democratic Party. You are on the right, you vote with the GOP, uh, things like that. No, uh, use your intelligence, uh, remain open to revising your opinions and self-subvert yourself if need be. Uh, and the best way to do that is to leave your echo chamber, to leave your comfort zone, uh, to burst out of your bubble. Uh, don't ask for um, safe spaces, trigger warnings. Uh, reject those. Reject the line of least resistance. Don't be a snowflake. <laughs> there you go. I think we'll, we'll leave it there then. Aurelian Kreutu, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. My pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your invitation. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>